Now we're told growing up that there's certain things that are inappropriate, you know, to do in certain settings and things like that. And, and there's other things that we might do that we don't know are inappropriate. We don't really find out that until afterwards. I'm still doing some of those things. Um, but, you know, as a kid, um, I lost an uncle uh, at age 36 um, to, to a massive heart attack, actually 34. And um, it's part of why having high cholesterol, I kind of paid some more attention to that. Um, but I can remember I probably was seven years old, I want to say. That might be about the average of my guess there. And... Um, at his funeral, it was so odd to me to be at a viewing. And, and there was my uncle. And um, we went up through there and kind of was standing there looking at him. And, you know, I was kind of wondering why he wasn't moving around and things like that. And I'm not really sure what I was thinking. But I reached up and honked his nose. <laughs> there in the coffin. And... Um, you know, I can't, I, my mom and my grandmother kind of had a little debate over that. One of them was, um, I can't remember which, um, I'll have to ask my mom this, but one of them was appalled and, and the other thought, this is really sweet because his uncle used to squeeze his nose. So it's kind of like one last, you know, got your back, you know. No tag backs. Um, and I appreciated that, that um, uh, what do you call it? That I appreciated that the, uh, the, the going my way with that, but I really think that the other of the two were probably correct. I probably was just wondering what is going to happen if I do this. <laughs> um, but, you know, like I said, we, we don't really know the things that growing up, certain contexts, certain, certain things, what should be expected of us, what should we be involved with, um, what should we, what, what is right to be doing. But, but we do learn that eavesdropping is something that we shouldn't be doing as kids. You know, maybe you guys as parents, you remember this or you've been in situations, maybe at work, when you're talking with someone and you notice kind of someone over you know, maybe about 10 feet away, and all of a sudden, you know, they kind of start stirring their coffee a little slower, you know, because they're, they're kind of dropping in on your conversation a little bit, or we as parents have had been in conversations, we kind of stop and kind of say one of our kids' names and realize that they say yes, and, you know, they're just like a room over, and we're like, okay, you know, we need to go talk somewhere else or something like that. But this morning, we are given... A passage of scripture in Mark 14 in which we're eavesdropping on anguish. We are eavesdropping on the anguish of the Father and the Son. We have a tendency to think that in our human estimation that God somehow became Father and Son so that we could better understand him? Or we think that maybe God describes himself as father and son, but that's not really what he is? Reality is, God was father and son and Holy Spirit before 
any of us were ever father and son or mother and daughter. And anything that we know about being father and son, anything that exists, anything that, that is about being father and son flows out of the fact that God the Father is father to God the Son and vice versa. And we eavesdrop on the anguish of a conversation between the two of them on the night prior to Jesus' betrayal and trial and crucifixion. And we're going to read through uh, verse 42 beginning this morning. Starting Mark 14, 32 and says, And they went to a place, being Jesus and his disciples, called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell to the, on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, being his disciples. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This morning, what we want to get across from this passage this morning is that the crucifixion was a significant moment for the triune God. We understand that the crucifixion was a significant moment in God's plan for us and God's plan for the world. We understand that the crucifixion was a unique moment, was a special moment, but what we want to gain from Mark 14 this morning is that it was a significant moment for the triune God in the relationship between the members of the Trinity. Our passage this morning is a snapshot from Jesus' night with his disciples before his crucifixion. Washing their feet, he has told them to do likewise in serving one another rather than arguing over who is greatest between them. He has eaten the Passover meal with his disciples. He's drank from the cup of the new covenant. He's instituted the Lord's Supper, which we celebrated this morning, commanding that his followers do so in remembrance of him. Jesus has informed his disciples that their shepherd would be taken from them and, but, and he would die, but he would rise again from the dead. As a part of this, he tells them that they will all fall away Peter and others proclaimed earnestly that they would not fall away, but they would die for him if necessary. And we see this morning how hastily that claim was made. 
Jesus has spent extended time praying for his disciples. You can see that in John 13 through 16. He's prayed for, for us as those who would believe in him because of their testimony. Jesus took his disciples to the garden area of the Mountain of Olives. Gethsemane means oil press. This would have been one of the areas where the olives would have been taken and pressed to have their oil, their precious oil come from them. This is, it's a place that would be well known to Jesus and his disciples, a place of, that they would have gone to prior to this for prayer or for retreat from the crowds. We see that Judas would have known where they were when he came back with the temple guard to the upper room and it says and he knew where they would have been from there so he's on his way it may have been a place that Jesus would have planned to spend the night there this would have been a practice of the of the um, uh, the pilgrims that were coming to Jerusalem for the Passover it would have been a practice for many of them to encamp on the Mount of Olives on that night. We know a lot of details about the night before the Savior died for the sins of the world. But what we see this morning from Mark 14, 32 through 42 is an in, uh, the intimate details of Jesus' emotion and sorrow. This passage opens up for us more the significance of the crucifixion, specifically for God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. So we see first the significance of the crucifixion is seen in the sorrow of the Savior's, our Savior's soul. It says, And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. So he says to eight of them, and he took with him, I'm sorry, to nine of them, he took with them Peter, James, and John. I can do math. And, and he began to, to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus and most of his disciples, he has them sit and wait while he and, and the other three, his closest followers, go with him deeper into the garden. We know from his discipleship strategy that, that it was for him to to pour into these three more than the others, Peter, James, and John. They'd seen him transfigured. They'd seen him in an upper room raise a young girl to life. So they continue on with him in order to pray with him and for him. There they observed his sorrow. It says that he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Peter is the source of Mark's information for his gospel. It must have been that Peter observed Jesus' emotional state. The term that described Jesus as being distressed here means to be astonished or alarmed. Jesus being alarmed over what is waving over him. Mark uses the same word to describe the women when they come to Jesus and find and to, to search for him or, or to bring spices after he's, after he's died and laid in the tomb on that third day and, he, and they find the stone rolled away and they see the angel appeared there. They were alarmed to see this. 
Though still entrusting himself to his father, Jesus is feeling the anxious feeling of panic. The term used for troubled here, you notice it says he was distressed or alarmed and troubled. The term used for trouble here means to be in distress of mind. To be full of heaviness. It can also mean to be in extreme anguish. The Bible Knowledge Commentary describes Jesus' emotions in this way. It says, The full impact of his death and its spiritual consequences struck Jesus and he staggered under its weight. Not only do his disciples observe Jesus' sorrow, he shares some of his burdened heart with them. He says, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. The sorrowfulness of his soul was such that he felt as if he could die from it. Soon he would look into what could have been, uh, sorry, soon we will look into what could have been it, that caused him to feel so much emotional pain. But some of us can identify with the mental stress that comes with the alarming feelings of anxiety. Or we know the troubling feeling of depression. Jesus doesn't fall into the funk that causes him to be concerned only for himself as so often does for us. But instead we see that he keeps his concern for the Father's will through it all. I don't know about you, but this passage causes me to think very carefully about my sin. I'm grieved that each time I choose my way instead of God's, I've added to the sin that Jesus had to carry. So Luke tells us that Jesus went about a stone's throw away from his three disciples. He must have been close enough for them to hear him pray. Although I've wondered why John doesn't record Jesus' prayer in his gospel. I would like to ask him one day if he's just more a sound sleeper than Peter was. We know that Luke and Matthew got much of their information from Peter at this time too. Obviously they weren't there. I'd like to know though from his hour-long conversation what else maybe stood out besides these few statements. But these few statements are what we have preserved. From Jesus at least his first hour. As he comes back and he asks his disciples. Can't you pray for an hour with me? Maybe it's because these statements were screamed out in anguish. But we see the anguish of our Savior's request. In verses 35 through 36. It says Jesus. Well let me say. Let me read it first. And going a little further he fell on the ground and prayed. That if it were possible the hour might pass from it. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is describing, he's described here as falling to the ground and praying. The term for his act of falling here is often used for a person laying themselves out in contrite worship. But we know that Jesus has nothing to be contrite about here. Mark summarizes Jesus' prayer time with the idea of Jesus asking that the hour might pass. 
if it were possible. The hour seems to summarize the whole ordeal of Jesus' bearing the sins of mankind and dying for them. He'll say to his disciples at the end of our passage here, the hour has come. There are a number of ideas that we might have to choose from of which each one of them would have been hard to bear. Certainly the physical death that he was going to endure was not something that he looked forward to. But we, we know that Jesus looked upon or took upon himself the sins of the world in order to pay the penalty of death for us. And it could be this, that taking on the sin of the world was so overbearing for him. We read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So he's saying, For our sake the Father made the Son who knew no sin to be sin. Meaning taking on our sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus is the only man that knows what it's is to be holy and perfect God. Taking our sin was not an easy prospect for him to look forward to. One person writes, describing the pain that would come with the sins of the world, he writes in this way, He who came only to save became the embodiment of every murder from Cain on. He, the very personification of truth, became the embodiment of every lie that has been ever told and will ever be told. He whose moral conduct was absolutely pure became the embodiment of every fornication, adultery, and homosexual act. Shakespeare movingly portrays the guilt that drowned Macbeth as he contemplated his single foul deed. But even Shakespeare is totally inadequate to describe the flood of horror, remorse, and loathing that rolled in mammoth waves over our Savior's soul as he contemplated what he was about to become. And that's the bearer of all sin. Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It wasn't just the bearing of sins that he was drawn to grief and a heaviness of heart. It was also the fact that he would bear the full wrath of the triune God for those sins that he bore. Jesus asked that the cup that he was about to drink be removed from him. Throughout the Old Testament, God's wrath is described with this cup metaphor in mind. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. Speaking to Jerusalem after they've have had some of God's wrath poured out on them. It says, You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. As well we read in Jeremiah 25.15 how the Lord set out, sent out his wrath on the nations. It says, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath 
and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Jesus was asking that God would take back the cup of his wrath from before him. But God is not to blame for the wrath that is incurred because it is created from our sinfulness. Jesus knew that the cup of God's wrath must be drank or removed. This was for the purpose of God's glory and for the good of those who would believe on him for salvation that it would be poured out on Christ. Next, I want to look at the title that Jesus used to address God the Father. Jesus addressed God the Father as his Abba Father. Abba is the Aramaic word for the Jewish term that a a Jewish child would call to his father. It it was a term that, that was considered in Jewish culture to be too personal to use to address God. It would have not been considered appropriate by ordinary people of that day to talk to God in this way. But for Jesus, it was very appropriate because of his closeness with God the Father and his work by his death and resurrection were to make a new relationship possible between God and man. That new relationship would be that of being God's sons and daughters. We're told in Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his sons into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So because of Christ's death and resurrection, his spirit is available to us to relate to God in the way that he relates to God so that in the same way that he called out Abba Father on that night, he was purchasing for us the opportunity to have a relationship with God as our Abba Father, thought to be inappropriate before that time. And so much of growing in that relationship with God is really, truly owning that. Really, truly being able to say to our tempter and our accuser, I am God's child. And really being able, whether it be in guilt or in doubt, to be able to come to God as our Abba Father. And no more than I would ever be able to legally or desire to disown my adopted sons, God will not disown me or you as his child. Because when you have prayed to receive Christ as your Savior, and his Holy Spirit has come and indwelled you at that moment, you are just as much his child as Jesus is. That's what the scripture tells us. Pretty amazing. The use of the term Abba here for Jesus is a foreshadow of the relationship that he will open up for us with the Father. And I think it's also a clue to us to know what I think was the toughest burden of our Savior. And that is his separation from God the Father. This is something that we cannot understand anything near to what it fully means. But we witness it in Matthew 27, 46, 
And it says, At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Describing his anguish in the garden, an author writes, We grope and get lost trying to understand the horror and utter travesty of death to a pure, sinless soul. But even more mysterious to our understanding is the gross awfulness and the impending separation from God that Jesus faced. He who had been one with the Father from eternity past. What a fearful rending when one of the persons of the Trinity became separated from the others. I was walking through Kroger this week and I caught a cool moment. It was a moment for a young father and his, his infant son. I think he was about one. And I don't know if you still call that an infant or not. But um, I'm so bad at like gauging children's ages. But they were doing something that was familiar to me. And those of you who have kids, you know, probably recall these moments. And it, it made me realize for a moment there of why I look forward to grandkids. Because I can't do this with, you know, this isn't a thing with my kids anymore. It'd be weird. I can't hold them like this anymore. But he was holding his child and just kind of looking at him. And at some point, his son had, had kind of reached up and grabbed onto the sides of his head and pulled his father's head down near to him. And the father had just gladly bended his head down till their foreheads had touched. And here in the middle of Kroger, with eyes closed, the two of them were just rolling their foreheads back and forth. Anybody remember those days? The closeness of a father and son. Just as there would have been a fury and a pain that would have been felt by that father if you'd come and ripped his son out of his arms. The pain would be multiplied by millions more when Jesus is separated from his Abba Father because of our sin. We want a reason that God saved us or sent Christ to the cross solely because of his love for us. And I think that was part of it. But I'm sorry, but I think the love for the Father and the Son between them would have overruled. God's love for us. It must have been that they saw this path of redemption as the one that glorified God the most. It must have been that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were more glorified by being both just and justifier of those who have faith in Christ. That somehow in their holiness and their righteousness and their love and their mercy and their grace and their might and in their eternality that all mixed together that this plan of redeeming their creation that had rebelled against them through immense and unthinkable sacrifice on their part it must have been that it all washed out to be this benefit for us at their total expense and I'm so grateful for it I 
In one of his songs, Andrew Peterson speaks of the day when the children of God will be with him for eternity. And, and how we'll look back on God's plan of redemption. And he describes it this way. He says, When the world is new again, and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, well, maybe it's a better thing to be more than merely innocent, but to be broken and redeemed by love. It must have been that this plan was better. I don't know how it was better for God. I have to say that honestly. But sure as heck is better for us. The chorus of that song asks, don't you want to thank someone for this? Don't you want a fear of the Lord that allows you to see your sin with more of his perspective on it? I do. Don't you want a desire for his glory in your life that causes you to be a little bit more willing to sacrifice as he was? We don't think of these moments for Jesus as being ones of temptation. But they were. And the answer for our moments of temptation are the same as his answer was. We see this in the strength of our Savior's resolve. He says, yet not what I will but what you will, Father, what you desire, what you have planned. And the answer to his temptation was to resolve that it would be the Father's will that would be carried out. This presents a question, though, and, and, and I don't have an answer for it this morning. I think the answer is out there. I just haven't found it. But how does God the Son, who has the same essence and attributes of God the Father, have different desires or a different will. And I know the triune God decided upon this, this path in eternity past. And it must have been the flesh that Christ carried that tempted him in this way. But how, how, um, how willing he was to let us in on that turmoil But I can share with you the facts that are involved here. Jesus has shared several times that he came to carry out the Father's will. John 5.30, he says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, he says, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. We learn from Philippians 2 that Christ made a decision to submit himself under the Father for our salvation. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't regard it as something that he needed to hold on to, as a right, even though it was rightfully his. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This emptied himself is describing the decision of God the Son to live submissively to God the Father and dependently on God the Holy Spirit. This is why, and it's neat, and, and we are going to go into uh, the book of John uh, next in our book studies. 
But it's neat that we will see there that there were times when Jesus knew what was going on and there were times that he didn't know what was going on. And what we know by that, Philippians 2 helps us to understand, is that God the Father and the Holy Spirit were, that God the Son had submitted himself underneath them. That there were times when he was allowed to use his powers and there were times that he wasn't. But it's because of that decision on his part to submit himself under them. He goes on, it says, in being found in verse 8, in, in human form, he humbled himself and became becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This moment here in the garden was one of temptation to reject the plan of redemption that the Trinity had decided on. Jesus was staring down the hour and the cup that he did not want to face and he was tempted to bolt. He was tempted to use his rights and his authority to meet the needs of his human nature that he was melded to at that point. This is no less the case than when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness to turn stones into bread in order to feed his hunger. But if you think of Jesus' human nature like being a wire that is easily bent. Thankfully, it was fastened to the steel beam of his divine nature and was not going to bend, but would be beaten nonetheless. The answer to Jesus' temptation and dilemma is the same answer for us. Philippians 2 called us for, to have the same attitude as that of Christ in his submission. Jesus' words of, not what I will, but what you will, are what we should be praying on a daily basis for every temptation. We've talked about the fact that we often look toward the change of our circumstances to help us obey. Like, you know, if I, if I could do that if this just wasn't going on in my life. Jesus' situation didn't change. It was his godly resolve to see God glorified that pushed him through. And we should be praying for godly resolve to obey and to glorify God no matter what hour we face. Jesus is our example here. But lastly, we, we see also the significance of the crucifixion in the words of our Savior's followers. Uh, our, the words to our Savior's followers. It says, And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Simon, to, to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. These are going to be the verses that we focus on here, but we'll read on here just to continue in the context of the moment. It says, and again he went back, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So he goes back to praying. And again, he came and found them asleep, for their eyes were very heavy. And they wake up, and, and they either, it's either that they don't have any excuse or they're like they're fumbling with their words. It says, they did not know what to answer. And he went up back to pray, 
says, And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour is come. But coming back to Jesus' first finding his closest disciples sleeping, here we find the ones that had said that they would die with him if necessary, not able to stay awake with him as he asked them to. Peter especially was bold in his claiming his allegiance earlier. And we find Peter being addressed specifically here. He's challenging his disciples to know how to escape the danger of giving into the flesh. The spirit that he speaks of here is the Holy is not the Holy Spirit, but it's the spirit of the follower of Christ. He's telling them it can be done to resist the temptation to sin that you're facing and will face in the coming hours. Jesus is teaching his disciples even as he is going through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus himself is our best illustration of this fact. Jesus' challenge is one that we have read that, that he knows from experience at this point. He's speaking from the experience of the heaviness, the heaviest form of temptation which he's going through. He suffered the temptation and the terrible tremors of the, un, of the foreseen future. And he responds, he's responded, not my will, Father, but yours be done. The disciples could seek the empowerment of their spirits and say, not the fulfillment of our fleshly desires, of our fleshly needs, but the fulfillment of God's will will we follow. Our flesh wants comfort. It wants pleasure. It wants intimacy. It wants the thrill of achievement. It wants its hunger to be filled. It wants things that are not wrong in themselves. But sadly, the desire of the flesh can be allowed to set one's will against the will of God and obedience to Him. At this point, the flesh is obeyed instead of God and the most important relationship is set aside for what we think are greener pastures. And our passage closes with these words. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, he says. My betrayer is at hand. And so the hour that Jesus had asked to be saved from began. And it was to be hours of physical and verbal abuse amidst illegal trials throughout the night. This would be completed with his pouring out his life to the very last drop and dying with his father's face turned away and both of them in immeasurable anguish and eternal torment of an eternal moment. You might remember over a year ago that we were praying for a high school girl named Molly. She'd experienced a brain aneurysm. It was God's grace that she was alive, but she was in a coma. They hoped and prayed that she would recover, and since then, she's almost fully recovered. Praise God. Yeah. I want to close with sharing a letter that was written to her parents during this time. 
the writer of it is sharing about Molly's experience and how it had impacted them. They write, It's caused me to live in the constant reality of life's brevity, the frailty of our bodies, and our loved one's constant care by God. I'm drawn to think of Jesus as taking a loaf of bread and tearing it, its flesh ripping from one side to the other, and telling us that this is my body. This was to represent that in which all the fullness of God dwelt in bodily form. What precious flesh and precious blood that hours later it would seem meaningless for it to be mangled and poured out as his, his loved ones and the Father watched. He goes on to write, I share this with you because all who love Molly live in the reality of a loved one's life hanging in the balance, but none more so than you, her parents. It's the tearing of the smallest vein in your Molly that has caused us to stop and pray constantly for your family. But the one in whom the fullness of God dwells in bodily form has been here. He has had his flesh torn and his blood spilt. He went willingly. You are walking on holy ground because our Savior has walked this line of life and death. And he is one who can personally sympathize with this dark veil that looms nearby. There's nothing that we can go through in this life that Jesus cannot sympathize with. Scripture tells us he was even tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Take this week to remember your Savior. He has walked through the darkest hours of his own life. He knows what it is to suffer through the strongest of temptations and with the power to deliver himself if he chose to. He knows and shows us from experience what following the Father's will is and how it is always better no matter what the consequences. We follow an awesome Savior. Let's close in prayer. John and the team can come up. Father, once again, it is, it just seems um, so weak to simply say thank you but thankfulness is something simple that you ask for from us on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, to thank you. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to go beyond that too and live for you, to live for the truth of who you are, to live for your honor, to live despite the temptation to, to just get out from underneath whatever it is that we're facing. Thank you so much, Jesus, that you know this, that you've experienced this, that you've been there, and that you can, can walk alongside of us no matter what it is that we face. Thank you, Lord, that even if we were to face death, that you have paved the way for death 
to lose its sting and to have no victory over us. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as a body to remember this this week. I pray that you'd help us as a body to share this hope with others this week as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.